As soon as dinner started, they, they took their shirts off and showed quite elaborate tattoos, which seemed to indicate they were some sort of gang tattoos. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Caroline Ballard. This time, how undercover investigators infiltrated a worldwide ivory smuggling ring. We've all heard of ivory trafficking. We know it's illegal because it kills elephants. But since there's such a big market for ivory in China, there's a lot of money to be made smuggling the raw tusks from Africa into China. The network is secretive, and it's hard to track down who's involved and where. Authorities do occasionally seize major ivory shipments, but often they can't catch the smugglers or figure out exactly where the ivory is headed. But in 2017, that changed. The Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA, is an organization with offices in London and Washington, D.C. It investigates and campaigns against environmental crime and abuse. Back around 2009, the EIA began hearing reports about increased elephant poaching in remote parts of Tanzania. Julian Newman oversees undercover operations for the EIA. We were hearing reports that tourists were seeing less and less elephants. We were seeing seizures of ivory that were coming out from the ports in Tanzania, like two or three tons at a time. So it all started looking like the situation was getting a lot worse in Tanzania. And we decided in 2014 to get on the ground and to verify some of the reports that we've been told, but also to try and do some undercover work as well to infiltrate some of these gangs that were behind this wholesale poaching. It was a huge massacre going on. I mean, figures have shown that between 2009 and 2014, Tanzania lost half its elephant population. That's over 50,000 elephants. So that was what prompted us to go and try and find out how this had happened and try and stem the tide so the elephants had a chance to recover there. The reason Julian is telling this story and not the investigators is because those people are still out in the field doing undercover operations. Before heading to Africa, Julian's team developed a cover story to blend in and help them meet the people they wanted to investigate. They posed as wood traders, claiming they were illegally trafficking rosewood from Madagascar via Zanzibar. Zanzibar is an island off the mainland of Tanzania. It's also a port. It was very much a place of interest for us for two reasons. One was the fact that it had been implicated in quite a few seizures of ivory, quite a few uh, shipments that were linked back to Zanzibar that had been seized in Asia. And secondly, Zanzibar has a slightly different legal system in the mainland Tanzania, so we suspected that enforcement there might be weaker than on the mainland. So we sent a team into Zanzibar in sort of mid-2014, uh, an Asian team, and they started engaging with the local Chinese community there, and it turns out that most of that community came from one place in southern China called Shuidong. It's a town we never heard of before. And a member of that community called uh, Wei, he had dinner with my colleagues and basically described this story about how 20 plus years before, people from Shuidong had sort of been employed by Hong Kong business people to harvest sea cucumber. Sea cucumber is a delicacy in China. It's a type of slug that lives on the seabed, and it's got a lucrative business. So the man from Shui Dong, Wei, 
talked to the undercover team about sea cucumbers and tried to get them to invest in the sea cucumber trade. But as they got to know him a bit more, Julian's team suspected Wei was dealing in more than just sea cucumbers. Slowly over time, we started introducing a new element of the conversation, describing how his brothers from Shuidong were also heavily involved in the ivory trade. And he mentioned a few names of people there in Zanzibar. And he also mentioned some of his so-called brothers actually in Shuidong who could help arrange the sale or investment in ivory. So over time, it became clear that this guy was not merely a cucumber trader. He was very knowledgeable about the ivory trade. By the end of that engagement, he had clearly made an offer to my colleagues to put money down as an investor in a consignment of ivory that he was going to help arrange from a Zanzibar end with his counterparts in Shuidong. During these meetings, the investigators wore hidden cameras to record everything, and then they transcribed the conversations right away, looking for more clues. And by now, the team was getting some solid leads on the ivory trafficking they'd come to investigate. Chatting more with Wei, Julian's team learned that Wei was part of an ivory smuggling syndicate based out of Shuidong, China. And this was big news for the Environmental Investigation Agency. Because until now, nobody knew that this was the town where most of the raw ivory came into China, before being sold on for carving, where the ivory gets turned into art or chopsticks or trinkets. And Wei explained more about how the Shuidong smugglers work. They tend to specialize in one element of the ivory trade. They don't go out to the bush with guns and shoot elephants, of course not. They don't carve the ivory into products. Their speciality was purely about getting the raw tusks into mainland China. And that's the part where the payoff comes for the smugglers. Because it's so risky, when the ivory crosses the Chinese border, there's a big price hike, and the smugglers make a lot of money. Julian's team wrote up the results of their Zanzibar investigation later in 2014, and the EIA shared it with the Tanzanian authorities. So we started seeing a few high-profile cases coming to fruition in Tanzania. There were a couple of Chinese gentlemen who were arrested at a warehouse loading over two tons of ivory. They were caught in the act, and they got 20-year prison sentences. And it seems, although there was still a big problem in Tanzania, the, the tide was turning a little bit. We weren't seeing the large-scale ivory seizures linked to Tanzania anymore, and it seemed the enforcement was improving. But the EIA didn't think that was the end of the story. Julian's team knew the ivory traders were nimble, so they figured the arrests had probably pushed the smuggling operations to other nearby countries in Africa. And so we thought we would um, check this theory out by going on the ground in a place called Pemba. Pemba is a small town, a port in northern Mozambique, and it's quite near the border with Tanzania. So we went there in April 2016 to get a sense of what was going on there. You know, it had oil and gas discovery offshore, it had Chinese timber communities, so it's one of those curious small towns that's quite a varied populace doing various trades. And so my colleagues were able to get on the ground quite quickly. And they were all set to have a few introductory meetings with people in the wood business to start trying to build up their contact base. But then by chance, in a hotel one night, they came across three Chinese guys who were in a restaurant and they were speaking in this very unique dialect, which indicated that they came from Shredong. 
So straight away, my colleague's interest was piqued at this. And so they managed to have a chat, started hanging out with these guys and spent three or four days in, in sort of general conversations with them. And so in the general chit-chat, the Chinese target said they were there to sell aluminium windows, which wasn't really a very credible story because we couldn't really work out why that trade would be happening. It didn't make sense. They also sort of said that they were there to buy some marine products, seafood products. Again, that didn't really make sense. It just didn't ring true. But by sort of day two or day three, one of them particularly called Wu, he was sort of speaking about uh, some people he knows. And they used to be in Tanzania, but now they've moved from there to Mozambique. And to the investigators, this added up to one thing. These guys were ivory traders. So, you know, the engagement lasted three or four days. Um, the three Chinese guys left around late April, and my colleagues returned to base. The investigators had developed a good rapport with Wu and the other two guys, Wang and Xia, and they stayed in touch through various apps. Xia was very much the sort of junior of the three. He was a, a fixer. You know, he'd been living in Tanzania before, doing a sea cucumber business and some ivory. He spoke fluent Swahili. Wu was uh, probably the senior of the three. He'd been involved in the trade for about 10 years. He was brought into the trade by his uncle, who was a notoriously prolific ivory trader. And the third member of the group was a guy called Wang. And he was there as a representative. He was in Pemba as a representative of a shadowy financier who was said to be based in Hong Kong. About a month after everyone left Pemba, the three ivory traders invited Julian's team to meet them on their home turf in China. Because the investigators were still posing as illegal wood traders, Wu, Wang, and Xia hoped they might have useful info, like international smuggling routes. These smuggling gangs... They have a phrase they use, which is called owning the road. They have a pathway from the source country to the end destination. And that can involve quite long, elongated routes. But they normally choose these routes because they have someone they trust at every step of the way, whether it's customs officers they're paid off, whether it's a freight agent. And one of the routes they used previously had been broken. There had been a seizure a few years ago. And once a seizure happens along a route, you know, it's not as reliable. And so they were quite keen to hear more about my colleagues' supposed route that they had to guarantee delivery of contraband to the Chinese mainland. And that was, that was what piqued their interest. So it was arranged for our team to go and meet with these three guys at their hometown in Shredon. The first meeting took place at a, at a kind of restaurant by the sea in the hometown. And of course, compared with Pemba, they were far more relaxed now. You know, as soon as dinner started, they, they took their shirts off and showed quite elaborate tattoos, which seemed to indicate they were some sort of gang tattoos. And they said pretty much off the bat that, you know, when we met you in Pemba, we weren't really selling aluminium windows. Well, there's a big surprise. They were there to inspect three tons of ivory that they had ordered in January. They had traveled there to inspect that consignment to check the quality of the tusks, to pay the balance they owed to the local suppliers, and then they left with the shipping bill, the bill of lading in their pockets the day before the vessel sailed out of Pemba Port, and they were then back in Shredong awaiting the arrival of their shipment to come to the town. It took a long 
convoluted route it was in October 2016 when we heard from the smugglers that it arrived in their hometown. So that's six months. That's a long time. And the route that it took was very circuitous. It went from Pemba, went up northwards towards Mombasa, a major port in Kenya. Then it moved on to Singapore. From Singapore, it was shipped to Busan in South Korea. Then from Busan, it went to Hong Kong. And from Hong Kong, it was taken across the border into mainland China. So that, that route, if you look at it logically, it makes no sense. But if you look at it from a smuggler's point of view, it makes perfect sense. Along with the convoluted shipping route, the smugglers had some other tricks to get their ivory shipment past customs inspections. They went out of their way to package it behind a layer of plastic pellets. It was so important to them, they actually got the plastic pellets from Dar es Salaam in Tanzania because they couldn't find them in Pemba. It starts making sense when you realize that the mysterious Hong Kong investor in this shipment, he runs a plastics factory in southern China. Therefore, it would not be strange for him to be importing plastic materials. But then if you factor in the strange routing as well, the bit that really had scratched our heads was, was Busan in Korea. I mean, it just didn't make sense, yeah? I mean, from Singapore, you can go straight to Hong Kong, no problem, and it would look like it had come from Singapore. They used a freight agent in Busan, and he was specialized in trafficking wildlife contraband. So in Busan, he would repackage the contraband up in a different container, change the container number, of course, change the shipping documents. So by the time that container arrives in Hong Kong, it looks like it's plastic pellets imported from Korea, which would not raise a red flag at all. By now, Julian and the team wanted to actually see this ivory. The EIA is very careful about this kind of thing because they don't want to entrap the subjects of their investigations. They don't want to encourage criminals to do something illegal, like buying ivory. But the team was confident in the story about the ivory shipment from Pemba to Shuidong. Up until this point, of the engagement with these three Chinese guys in both Pemba and Shuidong. They'd spoken a lot, but we had, we had no evidence that what they were saying was true. I mean, we were able to find a rough match for a vessel that left Pemba about the right time, so we had quite an idea what ship the container would have been on, but we had no container number. So, yeah, every time we got more information, like, for example, when Wu started talking about in the past being linked to a few seizures, members of the team, like myself and others, we would go and look at our records and try and see if we could stand up that information and see if we could start getting a sort of a documentary trail and evidence about these guys' activities rather than just what they were saying. My colleagues uh, managed to set up an opportunity to view it on the grounds that they had someone who they knew who was very interested in purchasing some of the ivory, their big boss, as they introduced him. It was quite a potentially risky operation, of course. You know, when you are when you're getting closer to the contraband, obviously the risk level increases um, because we have to be able to make sure we can extricate our people without having to put money down. Yeah, because our philosophy is we don't put money down. Also, the location wasn't known until quite late in the day. My, my colleagues went to Shredong Town, they had lunch with Shia and U, and the aim was that they would be picked up in, late in the evening, and by the time that happened, you know, they weren't sure where they were going, so it was quite a dark night. And they ended up, they were taken to a house, quite a large house, in a quite remote area on the edge of this Shredong Town, a wooded area, so quite, quite remote. 
And there were quite a few people milling about in the courtyard of the house, and they were led into the house, taken downstairs into a basement, where 500 kilograms of the ivory was laid out. 500 kilograms of ivory is about 100 tusks, so 50 elephants. And that was just a sample of the whole shipment. Wang Kangwen was there and Wu was there as well. And they said they were willing to you know, offer it to my colleagues to buy. If not, they weren't that bothered because there are some other buyers from Fujian. Fujian is the neighboring province to where Shuilong is, and Fujian is well known as a, the major ivory carving center in China. So my colleagues viewed the ivory, inspected it, managed to get all this on camera. And then they were able to leave quite in the early hours of the morning. And basically, I got the call from them they were out. And so we got them out of there straight away across the border and out of China. That was a key moment. Up to the point, it was really hearsay with a few fragments of evidence here and there. But the fact that they you know, had the ivory in their possession and the fact that they discussed the route and how it got there made everything they said stand up, that these were ivory traffickers and, and they were in Pemba to, to traffic ivory. After that, Julian and the team started writing up the investigation in a confidential report they shared with enforcement agencies, including Chinese authorities. We started trying to, to get some action against these three guys in particular and, and Shredong itself, because Shredong had never been raided, or there was not one instance of ivory being seized in connection with Shredong. Yet this town, to our mind, was at the center of the global illegal ivory trade, and something that had to be done about that. But Julian's team was still staying in touch with Wu and Xia and Wang. At that time, we just were trying to keep tabs on what their plans were, and who was very much switching his attention across to Nigeria. He'd gone into partnership with Wang, and Shia was about to do and see cucumber stuff in Tanzania. So it, it seemed that you know they were definitely developing a new stream of ivory supply, and they were also diversifying into other wildlife, like pangolin and rhino horn, at least who was. The EIA hadn't heard of any arrests in the case yet, and obviously Wu, Shia, and Wang were still at large. So a few months after the confidential report... The EIA went public with the information. The team had learned from the smugglers that they were actively planning further shipments of ivory. So the EIA thought making their findings public would prevent that. Pretty much the next day, we got information that there had been a major raid taking place in Shredong. The details are very, very sketchy. Hundreds of police had turned up in the town. They arrested quite a few people. And recently we've heard that, you know, three of the people arrested were the three people that we had exposed. Wang Kengwen, one of the three guys we met, he was arrested in that raid in July 2017. He got 15 years in jail. Shia, at the time of the raid, was in Tanzania. He was subject to a wanted notice by Interpol and he gave himself up voluntarily and was repatriated to China. And he got a six-year sentence because he wasn't quite as involved as the other guys. He was just more of a fixer. And the third guy, Wu Haicheng, was finally arrested in Nigeria in January 2019 and was deported back to China to face trial. It was only at the end, after the arrests, that Wu and Xia and Wang figured out that the Rosewood smugglers they'd cozied up to were actually undercover investigators. 
if you get the right people, it can be very, very important. One of the frustrations when we, when we look at wildlife crime and ivory traffic in particular, there's been, over the last decade or so, there's been a host of major seizures. You know, some seizures have been seven tons or more. Yet all too often those seizures don't lead to a proper investigation or proper prosecution. That's a problem because you're not getting to the, the guts of the issue. Likewise, if you sort of go around Africa arresting poachers, that's not really going to help the situation either because they're replaceable. It's, it's looking at those key people who work in the middle of those trafficking chains and, and disrupting their activities. And, and I think in this case, I think we can clearly say that by the prompt action of China Customs based on our information, that the major ivory trafficking network has been dismantled. And that's good news for elephants. And at the end of 2017, China shut down its legal ivory market, which should help reduce demand for ivory and further depress smuggling and elephant poaching. The next frontier in fighting the ivory trade, says Julian, is Vietnam. So the EIA's work continues, and the investigators who brought down the Shuidong Syndicate are back in the field, chasing down other wildlife criminals. Our storyteller was Julian Newman. You can read the Environmental Investigation Agency's report on the Shuidong connection at our website, humannaturepodcast.org. While you're there, you can also support this show. Every donation gets a sticker. And if you can give $25 or more, we'll send you a t-shirt. I'm Caroline Ballard. This episode was produced by Micah Schweitzer and edited by Aaron Jones, Destiny Lamas, Anna Rader, and me. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's you.